And we come to this familiar story. Now, I say familiar story because I think the story is far more familiar than the passage. And the reason I say the, the, the story is far more familiar than the passage is because if you look at your Bible text, you will probably notice that it is surrounded by a double parentheses, right? Or there's a little note that says, this was not found in some of the earlier manuscripts. And actually, that is accurate. What we have here, I believe, is not actually the pen of John. All right? What we have here is a story from the life of Christ that has been brought into John's gospel and is used in particular to illustrate certain points of truths in the context of this particular gospel. So you'll notice probably, depending on your translation, you may actually have it in the text. If it's the ESV, you have it in the text, but there's, you know, in bold little words there and double parentheses says, you know what, this isn't in the earliest manuscripts. And you know what, they're simply being honest. Some translations do not include it at all. Some translations, not so much the, the more modern ones, but uh, some older translations actually put it after verse 24, and there's a reason for that. Other translations have put it at the end of Luke's gospel. Now, what we have here, I will put in this category. We have here, um, what you have here is someone who's doing a message who's forgotten we have a PowerPoint. That's what you have. All right. Uh, what we have here is what we're calling a textual problem. And, and, you know, we could jump right into the story and not deal with this, but I want to be honest as a shepherd and a pastor here. This is probably the f maybe the second time we've come to a text that, that is questionable, and it's important for us to understand how do you come to the place that you can say that we are going to study this even though it's questionable, but understand that this actually is, we believe, the very Word of God. That's an important question. Because I think as, as Christians, we've all come to a place in time where we've asked the question, is what I have here actually the Word of God? Is this really what God has breathed out? How can I be confident that that is true? Am I right? As, as believers, as, as young Christians maybe, you're saying, okay, this is the Word of God, I accept it, but boy, aren't there errors in here? Aren't there problems with this? And we're coming to a passage where it's not part of actual John's authorship, but it is in the context of John's gospel. So I think it's important for us just to take a few moments here and ask some questions and just to, to study a little bit of, of the doctrine of Scripture that's called bibliology. And uh, there's really four areas that I think are important here. That would be uh, the, the idea or the, the teaching about inspiration, that the God's Word is breathed out by God. What you have, what we call the Word of God, is inspired. That doesn't mean that someone woke up one day and said, Eureka, okay, and wow, boom, here is the Word. It means that God is the author of the Word of God, although he is breathing out his words through those individual personalities that are the authors of various books of the Bible. So, I mean, the, the, there's, there's a numerous authors of books in the Bible, and they're written through the personalities of those individuals, but behind all that is God at work, okay? So it's important for us to understand the doctrine of inspiration. Then there's a the doctrine of preservation. How do we know that what we have today reflects what was originally written? And the autographs. The autograph was actually the original document. Okay? And that's a very, very important study. Um, we don't have time today to cover all of that. Um, but we can be very, very confident that what we have in our hand is actually God's word, that it has been preserved. One of the, one of the great evidences more recently is the Dead Sea Scrolls. And when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, like 1,500 years later, they compared it to the, the actual copies of the Old Testament that they had um, and they found out that it was like 99% accurate. There's going to be some variances, nothing significant, but it's incredible. Over all that time that God's Word has been preserved. Okay? Now, for us to share stories, we're going to add and we're going to subtract, and it's going to be distorted in the course of one day, right? But God, because He is God, has supernaturally kept His Word safe and pure. Okay? And that has been, the, 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 I want to say, the foundational teaching of the church um, throughout the years. And it's 
not just kind of like a pie in the sky, you know, we're just going to have faith in faith kind of a thing. No, it's actually based on scientific understanding and, and, and evaluation of the Word of God that is logical, that is ethical, that is using measuring sticks that are, that are questioning whether something is true or not, okay? So it's, it's, it's robust. The next one would be um, the, the, the idea of inerrancy. Is, is God's Word, um, um, is it true? You know, now, the trick question is, does God's word contain any error? The answer is yes, there are lies in God's word, right? So you can say it does contain error, but the idea is it is not erroneous. It speaks the truth, and you can be confident that what, what is revealed here is true. And the last one is it's, it's infallible. Um, it's trustworthy, and it's able to stand the test of time. So what we have here, and what we believe that we have here in our hands is the very word of God. And let's just look at the, this next statement here. Over the course of 1,500 years, God superintended human authors so that using their own individual personalities, they composed and recorded without error the words of the original autographs, that would be the books, the letters, the Psalms, and such, um, his revelation to man. So God desired to reveal himself to man, and in order to do that, he breathed his words through these men who weren't just sitting down saying, okay, what's next, God? Unless, unless, specifically they were prophets writing and knowing that they were writing for God, okay? But like John, when he's composing his gospel, is composing his gospel for the benefit of spreading the news of the gospel to a particular audience, God is behind all that supernaturally accomplishing his will and breathing out his word through the pen of John, using his personality, using his style, using the, the eyewitness accounts that he is bringing to the table. God is behind all that, breathing it out, okay? Uh, so it's not just, it's just not robotic. There's, there's real people with real feelings and real experiences and real eyewitness accounts that are recording um, what they see and what they hear and evaluating it, but God is behind and he's, he's solidifying it with his seal of approval and ultimately, um, the word has been preserved and embraced as the word of God. Now, um, it, we need to follow up and say, okay, uh, when did this take place? This didn't take place like, you know, 1980 or something like that, okay? Um, the Old Testament in particular um, was finally um, officially canonized, that means the, the, the group of books that were determined to be part of the Old Testament that were true, that were valid, that were authentic, um, the, not so much the church, but the, even the, the Jewish tradition recognized a particular set of books and embraced them as the Word of God. In fact, when Jesus comes on the scene, he talks about Moses and the prophets, right? And, and the Apostle Paul and, and the other apostles that are writing there are also saying the same thing. They recognize this body of truth called the Old Testament as the Scriptures, okay? So this was recognized um, by the early church, but also even by the Jews at that point in time, the Old Testament, that this is the very word of God. In the New Testament, however, it took a number of more years as the epistles, as different books came out. Now, if, if you have a Catholic Bible, you'll notice in that Catholic Bible, it's a different translation, but they include in there what's called the Apocrypha. There's a number of books that are called the Apocryphal books that, in particular, those that are reformed in their thinking, um, uh, rejected as being part of the canon of Scripture because there are flaws and errors and inconsistencies in those particular books. Now, this whole study of textual criticism, lower textual criticism, not higher. Higher basically says, here's a passage of Scripture and we're pulling it all apart and they got this from here and that from there. That's higher criticism. That is not something that we stand for. But lower criticism basically says, you know, all right, who wrote this? And where were they? And who were they writing to? And, and are there questions here that, that we can ask to determine whether this is true or not, whether this is really the very word of God or not? Lower criticism has been a science that has been practiced throughout the years. And we are, we are standing on the shoulders of many giants who have labored hard to come to the place where we can say confidently, this is the word of God. Okay? Now, this is, that's just kind of a real... Real, real big picture of this. But I just, I simply want you to understand that when we come to this passage of Scripture, that we have to bring some of those thoughts to bear. Because it is not necessarily John's words. 
In fact, the, the stylistic um, grammar that is used here in the Greek is different than the stylistic grammar that John would typically use. Those that would be Greek scholars would say, this, this sounds more Lucan, sounds more like this is Luke's writing. So you've got to say, okay, okay, that might be part of the package. What we do know, though, um, is, is the following. So here are a couple of things to think about as we come to this particular passage, all right? Why embrace this passage? First of all, um, uh, although we, we recognize that it's not John's writing necessarily, um, it is widely accepted as uh, an event that took place in the life and ministry of Jesus. You go back to the early church, you find writings there that, that recognize this particular story and this particular event and this particular uh, encounter with, with Jesus and um, this woman who was caught in adultery. Secondly, it is consistent with other similar trapping encounters. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, include other stories where the Pharisees are coming with the direct purpose to trap Jesus, and that's what we have here. It's this entrapment kind of a, of a story. And uh, so it follows the line of the other Gospels, and so it's consistent with them. The last thing is it does not undermine any area of theology. In fact, everything in this passage um, reflects other passages of Scripture that, that describe Jesus as a man of compassion, as, as one who um, is dealing with the Pharisees in, in a very, very uh, concise and clear way. It is theologically accurate. There's nothing in there that would undermine our understanding of who Christ is. Now, that's just a real short way of saying when we come to this passage, we can be confident that what we have before us is the Word of God, although it may not have been the pen of John. Now, you'll notice other places in the Bible, in your particular account, that there may be some verses that are in the footnote or added, and there's a little there's a little um, asterisk there or something like that. And they, they are clearly additions later by a scribe, not necessarily a body of truth that was accepted by the masses early on. Okay? What we have here is, I think, a very unique situation. Okay? Now, I realize that's just kind of like, oh, I felt like I was just going to school. and It's like, oh, this is a lot of stuff. But it's important at least to address this. Okay? Because we need to be confident that what we have here is the very Word of God. And I would not want to preach on this passage and you the whole time sitting there saying, what are all these brackets here and why is this not in the text? And, all right? We need to be confident that what we have here is, is what God has breathed out. So with, with that kind of backdrop, um, I think it's important uh, to listen, listen to the words of, uh, of John McCarthy here on this. I think it's helpful. This passage then was most likely not part of the original text of John's gospel, yet it is beyond doubt an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition that describes an actual historical event from Christ's life. It contains no teaching that contradicts the rest of Scripture. The picture it paints um, of the wise, loving, forgiving Savior is consistent with the Bible's portrait of Jesus Christ nor is it the kind of story the early church would have made up about him. Now, one of the reasons it has been a passage under question is because it deals with a woman caught in adultery in a positive way. When I say in a positive way, that she is forgiven. And in the context, in the, you might say in, the, in the, that Jewish context, that was, that was difficult to swallow. And even in the early church, it's like, is this, is this something that we can settle with? So you have to put ourselves in the context of what's going on there. But uh, as, we, as we further study it, we recognize that it, it is consistent. And it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that, that we are given here. So let's jump in and let's think about the setting. The setting. Um, let's read now beginning at verse 53. They went each other to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, what we have here is a picture of the practice of Jesus coming from Bethany, which is a, a village on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and he's coming day after day as a form of ministry to go to the temple. And when he goes to the temple, what is he doing there? He's teaching. 
Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were just talking about all these miracles that Jesus was doing and all that kind of stuff. And I, I said to you that the miracles were simply the means for, for, for him to be identifying himself as the one who has power. But the ultimate purpose that Jesus had was to come and to teach the people. What we don't find here is Jesus coming in day after day after day performing miracles. We find Jesus coming day after day, going to the temple and teaching the people about himself teaching the people about the good news of the gospel. And so we, we recognize here that that is what's being talked about. Luke 21, verse 37 says almost the same thing. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And in fact, if you look at John chapter 8 and verse 13, if you look at the context into which this story has been placed, you find in verse 13, So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So this story fits in there as Jesus testifying about himself, testifying about what he has come to do and who he is. And this is an example of it. And right after that in John's Gospel, they're, they're have, taking issue with the fact that Jesus is saying what he's saying. Okay? So the rationale of putting it there is to connect it there with the themes of this context. And some of those themes um, certainly are consistent here. The theme of judgment, the theme of belief, the theme of forgiveness, the theme of accusation, the theme of, of, of trying to catch Jesus. In fact, if you go to, to chapter 7 and verse 24, let me remind you of what Jesus says there. And the more I'm studying John's gospel, the more I'm coming back to this particular verse of Scripture, Jesus says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with the right judgment. Remember? As Christians, you often hear, you know, don't judge. Well, no, we are to judge, but we are to judge with the right judgment, which means that we are to look at ourselves. And we look at ourselves, and when we settle ourselves, then we have the measuring stick that we can look at others and encourage others. And even what we have here is a wonderful picture of how we do that. And Jesus is on display for us to see. Okay? So, as we go through this particular passage, we're given three windows that will teach us. We first have, oh, I'll have the, uh, the window of the, the ugliness of sin. Jesus is going to be teaching us about the ugliness of sin then the magnitude of sovereignty, and then, finally, the compassion of salvation. The ugliness of sin, the magnitude of sovereignty, and the compassion of salvation. It's really just a story that, that really unfolds one step to the next step to the next step, and each, each window is just a beautiful, uh, beautiful picture, really, except for this first one, except, uh, I would say, it isn't beautiful, but it is in a sense because it is honest. Okay, so let's jump in now, the ugliness of sin. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And that might have been said with a little bit more of a sneer. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now, friends, there are many sins in the Bible that are staggering and disgusting and that we really have difficulty reading about them, studying them, looking at them. Just think about um, in the Old Testament, the story about Pharaoh killing all the boys, in particular the Jewish or the Hebrew boys. Remember that story? And he's doing it just to preserve his own throne, preserve his own kingdom. And you read the story, you're like, man, this guy is vicious. You know, and, and then you get to the New Testament, and you find a guy by the name of Herod who's doing the same thing, right? I mean, that is vile, horrible, disgusting sin. And, it, and, and, and stories like that reveal just the, the blackness and the darkness of sin that is present in the lives of of people and, and, and does come and, and reveal itself over time. In fact, you look at the news. I don't know if you remember, um, you know, uh, the, the slaughtering that took place over in Rwanda a number of years ago. And just the, the way in which people just, just, just went and hacked each other. And these aren't armies. These are just people, just, just I mean, your neighbors, and they just turned on each other, and it was, it was awful. 
Now, this passage that we have here before us is another example of the blackness and ugliness of sin, the kind of sin that turns the stomach, the kind of sin that destroys relationships, leaves scars, upsets households, and causes the reputation of the gospel to be disgraced. And friends, get this, I'm not talking about the sin of adultery. (laughs) I'm actually talking about the sin of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, because the sin of adultery is brought up, we are duty-bound at least to look at it and to see what what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching us because it's here in this passage. We don't want to ignore it. But ultimately, what this passage is about and the ugliness that has taken place here is that which the Pharisees and the scribes bring to the table. But let's just take a few moments here and talk about the sin of the woman, and it is the sin of adultery. Adultery is sin. In fact, um, you can go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 14 and clearly see there that it is the seventh commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Can't get any plainer than that. That's what it is. This same commandment in the New Testament, is upheld by Jesus. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 says this, You've heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So not only does Jesus uphold that commandment, he adds to that commandment. Right? So adultery is a sin. It is clearly commanded in the Old Testament. Jesus upholds it. He adds to it. And friends, we must not be afraid to call sin what it actually is. What Scripture calls sin, we must call sin. Sexual sin was huge, and it was a problem in Jesus' day. It is a huge problem today, is it not? I mean, you you cannot leave today. As you go, you are going to be coming face-to-face with some kind of a pressure, some kind of an indication, probably a billboard, maybe something on the radio if you have it on. But in the course of today, you are going to be um, pursued somehow to satisfy some sexual desires. That's part of our culture. It's just out there. TV, magazines, uh, just all sorts of resources. It's even on like, you know, you know like Coke bottles and, and, you know, grocery things that you get. It's just pictures are there. And it's going after us. And we must always be faithful to say what the Scripture says about the trappings of sexual sin and the devastation that they bring. Adultery does tear families apart. It does cause children to be discouraged and to sometimes question whether they are loved. It does cause scandal within a family or within a church. It does have rippling effects. It is sinful and it is devastating. But let's understand that it's not just adultery. It's any sexual activity outside the boundaries of the marriage bed. All right? Having sex before marriage, having sex with someone who is not your spouse is all considered to be sin in God's eyes. Whether you have a particular sexual preference or not. Now, I I realize this is, you know, this is awkward stuff to be talking about, but listen, if if there's got to be a place to talk about it, and this has to be the place because God talks about it. We must recognize, and we must we must recognize that we need to encourage one another and help one another to not give in to the temptations that are, that are so prevalent that will really cause harm and havoc to the body of Christ and to lives and to families and to marriages. We must take the warning and heed that warning. But having said all that, although this woman who is caught in adultery is brought to the center stage, so to speak. It's not her sin that is really the focus of attention of this passage. It's not her sin that is really what is being drawn out to show us what is vile and horrible. It is the sin of the Pharisees and the scribes. Again, look at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now, adultery is typically a sin of passion. But we find here with the Pharisees and the scribes is a sin of premeditation. Now, not that there are different degrees, but you can have a little bit more compassion on someone who just through the midst of passion went a certain direction and they, 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 they fell in sin. But what we have here is a premeditated, deliberate, conniving, contriving act purposely using other people, involving other people so that they can get to Jesus and discredit him for who he is and what he's claiming to be. Let's just walk through this passage again very carefully, but let's ask some questions as we do it. Why bring this woman to Jesus? Now, it's, a, it's an important question because they're already saying the law says this is what should happen to this woman. And the law actually, talking about Old Testament in particular, the books of Moses, clearly lays out if this is true, then you're going to be taking it to the leadership, the Sanhedrin in particular, that would be the ones that would actually exercise the judgment or, or, or pronounce the judgment. Why bring her to Jesus? He's not the one who has authority in a human sense to bring judgment. There's already a place for that to take, you know, for that to happen. So Jesus is not the official judge here, but they bring her to him. Clearly, then, what we have in this text, because we're told in verse 6, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Purposely, she was brought to be used as a pawn to manipulate Jesus so that he would answer one way or the other and thus discredit himself. The second question to ask is this. What is the evidence that is being brought? What's the evidence? In order for someone to be found guilty of adultery, there, there were so many hoops that had to be jumped through. It was very, very difficult for someone to be found guilty of adultery to the point that their um, consequence would be stoning. There had to be at least two or three witnesses, but the instructions were very clear. The witnesses had to literally catch them in the act. Now, I have to be a little bit graphic here. They literally had to catch them in the act and literally had to demonstrate by what they saw movements that would clearly show that intercourse was taking place. And those witnesses had to corroborate. Their, their witness, their testimony had to be identical and if it wasn't identical, it was cast out. Could not be used. Could not be introduced. So, let us think a little bit here. This woman is caught in adultery. She's come now, presented before Jesus. They ask the question. Of course, they have witnesses there. You see how all this is all working together. This is a plot. This is a plan. This is a purpose by the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes, the ones, the masters of the law, the Pharisees who are saying, all right, what can we do? How can we catch him? Here's what you can do. They create this scenario. It's very, very clever, very, very well thought through. Next question is this, and I'm sure you're already asking the question, where's the man? If this woman was caught in adultery and there have to be two or three witnesses to see them, then where is the man? Why is it just the woman is brought here? Now, did they just let him go? Did he slip away? At best, they let the man go and left the woman to take the brunt of the blame, which would not be unusual in a very chauvinistic culture. And many cultures are that way. If a woman commits adultery, it's the worst thing. If a man commits adultery, it's like, nah, slap him on the hand. It's very typical in a chauvinistic culture, and uh, historically, that is the way things have played out, okay? At the worst, the man purposely seduced the woman in pursuit of this plan to trap Jesus. Now, there's another nuance that I, I'll bring here. It's not in my notes, but it's a nuance that, that there were actually two ways for someone to be punished for adultery. One was um, stoning. One was strangulation. Strangulation 
was for someone who was committing adultery, but they were actually married. Strangling was for a, for a young woman who was betrothed to be married. Okay, I, I got it. Yeah. Stoning, yeah. Stoning was for the, for the, for the young woman. So you, what you have here very, very likely is a young woman who has been seduced. Okay? Just, again, food for thought as you're thinking through this scenario. You're talking about a group of men who are using a girl to accomplish their ends to discredit Jesus for claiming himself to be the very Son of God. Now, it's this kind of behavior, friends, that just caused people to be sick to their stomachs. When, when, when people in leadership abuse women, abuse young girls for their own ends, it causes, and this happens and has happened in the context of church, it causes people to stop trusting leadership of any kind. And all the more reason that we need to be careful, we need to be sure that we treat one another with godliness and we're careful and that we are respectful and we are moving away from chauvinism totally and completely. Another reason, another evidence that Christianity liberated women and didn't leave women in the confines and the struggle of the bondage that they were actually in. Okay? There's another question here, and that is this. How was the word of God handled? Because notice in this passage, it says this. Now, in the law of Moses um, commanded us to stone such women. So, what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge uh, to bring against him. Now, now get this. If... Uh, if she is guilty of adultery and the law of Moses commands them to stone such a woman, then why bring her to Jesus? We've already answered that question. Clearly, they wanted to use her. But because they were using the word of God, the law of Moses, as a weapon of Jesus, or a weapon against Jesus. In other words, they, they, they were taking the law. Yeah, the law said this, but now they're using the law as the basis for their argument. They weren't using the law appropriately. They were coming to Jesus. They shouldn't have been bringing him, this girl to Jesus. They should have, if this was true, gone to the right place. But they're using the law as a weapon against Jesus himself and ultimately as a weapon against this girl. They took the precious word of God and added their sinful and hateful and abusive motives of their hearts so that God's law wasn't health of the soul but a weapon against those who oppose them. Now listen, although the woman is guilty of adultery, there's no, there's no denying that in this passage. She was. The glaring sin was the hateful, accusing, uncaring, of be willing to abuse, prejudice, and unbelieving attitude of the Pharisees. I say hateful because they were desiring to kill him and to ultimately to arrest him and ultimately to kill him. That's why they're in, trying to entrap him. Abusive because they're willing to use and abuse another woman in order to get to Jesus. Prejudice because uh, where, this, uh, where is this man? I mean, it's just this woman. Where is the man going on here? There certainly seems to be something strange going on there. And it certainly was unbelieving because ultimately the most horrendous sin is to reject that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But see, all of this was just this this desire to get rid of him. And the question is, to what extent will you go? Well, they went to the very lowest extent, involving other people and even taking someone who was guilty, but the question is whether she was truly caught or whether it was some kind of a seduction where she was manipulated into it. Friend, bottom line is this. Sin is ugly, is it not? And when you desire something so much, what happens is that sin raises its ugly head and starts driving at getting what you want. And it is ugly. Just think about those times, husbands and wives, when you begin arguing with each other. And, you know, the argument begins and you start talking about whatever the, the topic is, and then, of course, it gets derailed, and it's no longer about the subject. It's now about 
me winning or me saying what I feel and what I want in order to get my way. And you, it, just, it just turns into ugliness, doesn't it? With siblings, the same thing is true. You walked into my room. And you didn't ask me. No permission. It just gets ugly. It gets worse. You know, things start flying out of the room. So I'm bringing you into my household, right? It's not really like that, right? You know, it just, it gets ugly. Sin gets ugly because we want what we want. And when we allow sin to raise its ugly head and we feed it, it's amazing the things that happen. It's amazing the things that we say. It's amazing the things that we do. Sin is ugly. And what's going on here is ugliness on display, ugliness that is scandalous, ugliness that wants to do everything it can to get rid of Jesus. Now hear this. Some sins are culturally scandalous. And adultery would certainly fit into that category. However, less and less so. But all sin is eternally scandalous. See, it's not adultery that keeps you out of heaven. Adultery is a sin. But when you were born, you were born in sin. That means you were born with a sin nature. And the very fact that you had a sin nature meant that your destiny was hell. And it's that sin that keeps you out of heaven. And that's why you need Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished on the cross. So adultery, lying, prejudice, gossip. You may have read or heard about Jerry Bridges' book, Respectable Sins, those kind of things that we don't think are really that bad, but it's sin. Sin is sin, and that's what keeps us out of heaven. It is eternally scandalous. Now, it's against this backdrop that the blackness of blackness and ugliness of sin that we now see the magnitude of God's sovereignty. Let's just kind of switch gears and remind ourselves a little bit, just again, what, what was going on here. Imagine how this day began for the Pharisees and the scribes. They're, they're probably in the back room having some conversation about what can we do and how can we do this. We know that Jesus comes every day to the temple. All right, here's his routine. We know he's going to be there, so here's what we can do. We've got it all figured out, and you're going to go do this. And I just really think that this was plotted, this was purposeful, that there was a particular young girl, and there was probably a, some kind of a relationship that was built, and she was seduced, and then adultery was taking place, and there was this catching of her in adultery and bringing her now to Jesus. All this is going on. They're dragging this, per, this, this, this woman in, this, this crowd gathered to hear what's going on. Jesus is speaking to all these people. There's a lot of people present. The Pharisees are there, and the question comes out. Now verse 5. Now when the law of Moses uh, commanded us to stone such a woman, what do you say? Boom. So Jesus, should we stone her or not? What do you say? Well, what we have here is this huge dilemma. Let me explain the dilemma for you. First of all, um, if he says, you know what, she's forgiven, if he counsels for that, if he objects to the stoning, he would then be guilty of opposing the law. And if he's opposing the law, guess what? The Pharisees have caught him, and they can say, hey, he doesn't care about the law. You shouldn't list him. Now, it would discredit him, right? If he counseled for condemnation, one of the things about Jesus was that his reputation was such that he had compassion for people. And if he counseled for, uh, for, for her to be stoned, then it would undermine his, his reputation and the fact that he was known as this person who was compassionate. And so they would catch him again. They would discredit him, and the result would be you know, what he was known for and, and the following he had uh, would be undermined because they would say, ah, see, he's not compassionate after all. He's just a letter of the law guy, right? So you have these two things that are going on, two very, very important things. How do you uphold the law and how is it that you are merciful? Well, let's conti continue reading here. Just remember that they're between a rock and a hard, he's between a rock and a hard place, we would say. There's another dynamic here, and that is this, that at that present time, it was only the Romans, who would exercise any particular kind of um, 
execution. And if the Sanhedrin did it, the Romans would get really, really upset. So there is even a political dynamic that is, that is in this, that if Jesus says, we'll stone her, and people did stone her, then they would blame Jesus for causing a riot and violating the relationship with Rome. Okay? So this is a very, very well-thought-through, contrived plot against Jesus. We have to understand what's going on here and putting all those things together. Now, it says as we read on, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the, on the ground. We see that twice in this text. Now, there's been a lot of speculation as to what he did in writing there. Okay? He wasn't drawing pictures of SpongeBob. Okay? Um, he, was, he was probably writing something significant there, but the reality is we don't know. Now, some have said, he may have been writing the sins as a judge that he would accuse these men of. All right, possible. Again, we don't know. Some have said, well, he was writing down Jeremiah 17, 13. Listen to what it has to say. Just think about the context here. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the earth. For they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Now, the very next passage has to do with what? Living water. And here, Jesus is writing in the ground. And the very ones that it should be put to shame, it's not the woman who's caught in adultery, it's these leaders. So there's an understanding as to why people might think, you know, this is a passage of Scripture that Jesus may have been writing. Well, we don't know. So we don't want to maximize that and say, you know, it's possible. Obviously, he was thinking something, he was doing something. But for our purposes, it's not absolutely necessary to come to that conclusion. But it is interesting uh, that there is a connection there. Verse 7, as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. That's quite a statement. Now, you've probably heard that statement taken out of this context and used, right? Let him who has the, you know, who's without sin cast the first stone. Let him who's without sin cast the first stone, right? And maybe you, you've, you've gone to someone and you're talking about sin in their life. You're like, hey, you know what? You've got sin in your life. You don't have any right to cast a stone. Hmm. Okay. Is that really what's going on here? Well, Let's think about this a little bit. This is not a blanket statement that teaches us that we should not judge because we sin. You can go to other passages of Scripture that tell us that we need to deal with our sin before we actually point out other people's sin. This is not a blanket statement. This actually is a statement directed at a particular group of people, not just everyone who's standing there. The first people to cast a stone in a stoning are those witnesses who saw this woman caught in adultery. So he's directing his question specifically at those witnesses who are now standing stone in hand waiting for his instruction or his answer. If you, who are the witnesses, are without sin, you are the ones that are to first cast the stone. And here's what's going on. Obviously, this was a connived plot, right? I mean, that's what's going on here. They're manipulating the situation. They're not coming honestly and saying, oh, you know, we were happy to go out for a walk and we looked in the window and there they were and we caught them in sin and we brought them to you, although we were supposed to go to the Sanhedrin, but we came to you instead. No, there is sin in their heart and they know that Jesus has just exposed their plot. He's just exposed what they have been about doing, that they are guilty of sin. And if they were to cast that stone, it would be the grossest kind of hypocrisy. But isn't it amazing that when people are religious, they can justify their sin because they're doing it for God. Jesus exposes that sinful attitude, that horrible, horrible, sinful attitude attitude. It was directed specifically at those witnesses. Now, friends, here is the dilemma that this passage brings out and that Jesus, by those words, just simply disseminates and, and it, just, it just trickles away. The dilemma of this passage is the tension between the justice of God and the mercy of God. 
The fact that God is just, he has given his law, his law needs to be followed, must be followed, and if we do not follow it, we, we face the wrath of God. But God is also merciful. He forgives. He's compassionate. He cares. And they're trying to catch him out. And what they don't know is that Jesus can bring solution to that dilemma. Look at Psalm 85, if you would, please. Psalm 85. Psalm 85 and verse 10. Now, talk about justice, talk about mercy. In this passage, in the ESV, different words are used, but the idea is the same. Think about two different, might want to say, functions, you know, justice, mercy. Verse 10, steadfast love, that would be mercy and faithfulness meet, justice. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Justice and peace kiss each other. Here's what I want us to see, guys. Here's what I want us to, to embrace that Jesus does in this passage. He takes the justice of God, which must be satisfied, and he takes the mercy of God, which is part of the heart of God that is exercised toward mankind, and it all comes together and kisses at the cross. It is on the cross where Jesus hangs and takes the sin of mankind, where God is pouring out his wrath, satisfying the justice necessary for mankind. God's wrath is satisfied on Jesus. But at the same moment, On the cross, not only is his wrath satisfied, but God's mercy and his forgiveness is accomplished by that sacrifice. Thus, providing reconciliation for mankind. So what's going on here is Jesus is saying, listen, you who are without sin, cast the first stone. The dilemma here is you're trying to catch me with the justice of God and the mercy of God, but guess what? Both are accomplished in the good news that I have been teaching here at the temple. And the future was going to be a cross where he would hang and he would die, and both of those things would come and kiss and provide for us a beautiful experience of salvation that only could be accomplished through that one act. Now, friends, it's amazing. I mean, just theologically, it's amazing what Jesus accomplished at the cross in bringing these two things together. Because these Pharisees and these scribes were convinced that you could not. And that's why they created this dilemma. But Jesus resolves it through the cross, through the gospel. Listen to Romans 3.26. says it very, very clearly. Talking about the cross, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Because of Christ, justice is paid for, is taken care of, and justification, restoration, reconciliation is accomplished. The compassion of God is experienced, the wrath of God is satisfied, and we are blessed beyond measure. All right? I mean, isn't that just incredible, beautiful? See, friends, this is, this, this is about the woman who's caught in adultery, but it's not about the woman who's caught in adultery. It's about these men who are out to destroy Jesus, but God, in his magnificent, magnanimous sovereignty, always knows what to do <laughs> and is doing it and bringing it all together in this picture. Now we move to the compassion, the compassion of salvation. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't even put that up there. The compassion of salvation. Now, again, get the picture of this, of this moment. Now, th- from the perspective of this, this woman, this young woman, she's been dragged to Jesus in open shame, accused of adultery, and she is guilty of it. The Pharisees repeatedly are asking Jesus, the law, 
says, stone her, but what do you say? So she's hearing all of this. She's probably hearing comments from other people saying, yeah, that's right, the law says that you should do it. And someone else saying, no, you know, maybe be compassionate. And, you know, she, she's taking all this in. I mean, just, just try and think through what would be going on in her mind, in her head, as all this is going on. She's probably wondering, how many, how many more breaths do I have? And Jesus says those precious words, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And the witnesses begin to go away. It says from the oldest first to the youngest. Interesting. It's almost like there were a lot of them. And now Jesus and this woman are all alone. The dust of the events has settled and for the first time, Jesus speaks to this woman. And here's what he says. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman. And, and, and please, when, when you see that and it's coming out of Jesus' mouth, don't think of it as, as an English statement of woman. All right? it's, it's a very tender, loving, perfect way to address her. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, guys, I just want to finish up here by, by showing you four attitudes that Jesus has that are attitudes that we need to have as we interact with people who are caught in sin. The first one is this, an attitude of understanding. It's important that Jesus understands what's going on. Do you think he understands how she has been abused? Do you think she, he understands how she was part of this plot? And yes, you know what? There came a point in time when she said yes to the seduction. When she actually participated in adultery. He understands the burden of her heart. He understands her anxieties, her fears. He understands her shame before God, before him, and before the people. And it's public now. He understands all that. And please hear this. This is true about us. When we sin, although that sin is something that separates us from God or hurts our relationship with him, he also understands it. He understands the, the decisions that were made or the way that you were pressured or the things that, that were, were, were part of the package that, that really were pulling you and alerting you and, and drawing you to commit that sin. He understands. That doesn't excuse it, but hear this. It's not just that he condemns, he understands. Now, whether it's sexual sin or, or something else, you stole something, you lied about something, you, whatever it might be, he understands. And he understands what's going on in your heart. He understands what was going on in her heart. And it's so important to, for us to embrace the fact that he does understand. He knows and understands what you've done, why you did it, how it happened, and why you're feeling about it the way you are right now. The second attitude is an attitude of compassion. Now the truth is that as a sinner, she is already condemned. We read that at the beginning of our service. Let's just go back again. John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Like I said before, when, you are, when you're born in this world, you're born in sin, you are already condemned. You are already destined to hell. That condemnation, her circumstance, her adultery did not change her position. She's condemned. So when Jesus says to her, um, neither do I condemn you, he's saying, I'm not condemning you further, afresh. And the kind of condemnation was really more of a, of a social or religious condemnation that was from the people. He is not condemning her. The beautiful reality that we're told because the justice of God and the mercy of God kiss in the gospel is 
that we are no longer under this condemnation. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You were once condemned because you were living in unbelief. But now, because you believe, you are no longer condemned. Oh, you did those sins. Those were real sins, and you were accountable for those sins. And you were responsible for those sins. But those sins, the, the wrath that was necessary to satisfy what those sins did was satisfied on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. You no longer condemned. You are clothed in his righteousness. Think of an umbrella, Jesus being that umbrella, that covering. You are protected because of what he accomplished on the cross. So there's this attitude of compassion. Now, friends, you might feel condemned, but if you're a child of God, it is self-imposed condemnation because it means you're not believing what God says is true about your position in Christ. Now, don't feel bad if you feel condemned because you won't be the first person. And we all wrestle with this at times when we see the ugliness of our sin post-salvation. We come face to face with it, and we are ashamed of it. But what we need to do is we need to run to the cross and remind ourselves, you know what, it's paid for, and his, his love has been granted toward us. The satisfaction of, our, of that wrath has been, has been placed on the shoulders of Jesus Christ, and I am no longer condemned. And I need to go back there so that I can get up and I can live my life for God's glory in that position and that function and that attitude of I'm no longer condemned. doesn't mean that I'm no longer, I'm, I, I was never responsible. I was never accountable. But I'm not condemned. It's paid for. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Isn't that wonderful? And there's an attitude of forgiveness. It says, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. And from now on, go and sin no more. There. This was his desire from the beginning. Yeah, he, he had to deal with the Pharisees. He had to deal with their plot. He had to, you know, kind of unravel it and, and put them in their place so that they, were, they couldn't do anything. They were speechless. And, he, you know, he, he, he basically defended himself beautifully and wonderfully. But it was also a means to protect this woman and to care for this woman and to make sure that she was safe. Because if they hadn't have brought her, if this, if this wasn't coerced, and they, she was caught in adultery, and there were witnesses. Where should they have taken them or taken her? The Sanhedrin. And they would have found her guilty, and they would have stoned her. So the fact that he says what he says also is a means of protecting her and caring for her. And notice what it says here, neither do I condemn you. And we will be careful here that this is not just some kind of a cheap grace that's going on. He's not just kind of you know, breathing out stuff that is insignificant. Um, you know, uh, Jesus at other times says to certain people, your sins are forgiven, right? And the Pharisees take issue with that. And we can't question what Jesus says. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. We've got to take it at face value. He's forgiving her for what she has done. Now, it was costly because of what he was going to accomplish on the cross. The next attitude is an attitude of what I'm calling challenge. Attitude of challenge. It says, and Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, friends, that is, that is so important. When you walk into your relationship with Jesus Christ, right back here, you're, you're living your life for yourself, you're living in sin, you're an, you're an unbeliever, and you come to the cross. God drew you to himself and, and you were born again, you entered into this Christian walk, and the goal now as this young Christian or as this growing Christian is that you are pursuing godliness. The goal is that you sin no more. Now, anyone ever accomplish that? But that is our pursuit, right? It's, it's, it's expressed in a number of different ways in, in the Word of God. Be holy for I am holy. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Run for the prize. Paul says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, being made conformable into his death. These are all talking about this pursuit that we have, this pursuit of holiness. But, but the order that is being revealed for us here is really, really important for us to pay attention to. Notice 
the order. He doesn't say, go and from now on sin no more, and then I will not condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. That's important for us to realize. If you have walked through the cross and you've received Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you must hold on to the reality that you are no longer condemned and that your life's goal and desire now is to pursue holiness. Now, you're going to fall and you're going to fail. And he wants you to, to get up and keep plugging away, but not to do it in your own strength, but just to, to, to allow the Holy Spirit to feed you and to nurture you and to push you toward that goal. But if you flip it around, boy, that's, that's bondage. And what happens many times is that people come into their walk with God and they say, yeah, you know, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. And then they, they walk into their Christian life and they begin to live their Christian life as if they have to prove something to God. As if they have to, to do these things, and then God will bring blessing. And again, you're just back into bondage. No, go and pursue holiness. That pursuit is a struggle, and it's a pursuit, and it's a statement that Jesus gives, knowing and understanding sin, knowing her struggles, knowing what life looks like. He's a forgiving God. He's a patient God. He's a, he's a God who, who wants to, to grow us step by step. Grace heaped upon grace. Grace by, by, by measures. I mean, listen, some of us, you know, from, from one year to the next can say we've grown a little bit. We've, 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 we've gone along this process. Hopefully you're going up, right? But it's measure after measure. It's not instantaneous. Ooh, look at me. I'm super holy. Step by step, little by little. Failure, get up, keep plugging along and doing it in the power of the Holy Spirit. He understands us, he loves us, he forgives us, and he calls each of us to be pursuing holiness together. Now, friends, just, just in closing, um, I just want to bring one thing or just a couple things to our attention. Number one, and this, this, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I want to be very, very careful to make sure that we say this. It's very, very easy to be passionate about the Word of God, so much so that you use it as a weapon rather than use it for ministry. Okay? The last thing we want is to create a context where we are experiencing Bible thumping, and I mean by that, using the Word of God to slap people into place. Because when that happens, the ministry of the Word of God no longer exists. And there are many cults that have been established. There are many churches that, that are, are present where the Word of God may be present, but it is used in kind of this, this abusive, let me beat you up with it. Let's, let's just be honest about the fact that we're sinful. You know, we, we, we all struggle with backbiting and being hypocrites and thought lives all sorts of stuff. Let's just be honest. We struggle with sin. And if we can embrace that reality, we can say what we need is not to be beaten up with the Word of God, but ministered to with the Word of God and through the Word of God. And there's a huge difference. How are we going to treat someone that is part of our fellowship if they are caught in adultery? If they're caught in some other kind of sin, if it becomes, might want to say, scandalous within the body of Christ, how are we going to approach them how are we going to interact with them? Are we going to use the Word of God against them? Are we going to somehow abuse them with the Word of God? Or are we going to minister the Word of God? Are we going to follow the example of Christ? And say, you know what? I understand how you got to where you are. Hey, listen, let's call it. It is what it is, but I understand how you got there. And you know what? You're coming and you're, you're, you're humbling yourself and I have compassion and I want to help you. If we don't have hearts like that, we're not going to be any good to each other. We have to be honest about what it is and say this is what Scripture says and this is what you need to do and plead for repentance and rejoice when repentance takes place. And if that person repents, surround them and love them and encourage them. And I, by that, I do not mean be cheap. Well, it doesn't matter. It's okay. 
No big deal. No, it is a big deal. Let's deal with it biblically, but let me love you along the way as I'm dealing with, with it biblically. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is a passage about church discipline there. A lot of people think, oh, it's so harsh. No, it's a beautiful, wonderful, loving passage because the goal there is restoration. And as a body of Christ, we want the body to be restored. We want the body to be healthy. And so sometimes it's hard to talk about sin in our lives, but we need one another. We need the gospel. We need Christ, and we need the body of Christ to help us with that. Well, I think that's it for right now. So let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. Thank you for this passage. Lord, this is... Um, this is such a, a weighty text of Scripture. Because, Lord, as we come to this, some of us reading this passage identify ourselves with the woman caught in sin. We may be living a lives right now where people know of our sinful past or may, maybe our recent sinful present or maybe even our present struggle. And we just we just... We wonder what other people think, and we struggle with that, and, and Lord, it's a burden to us. And we, we need afresh to know that before you, as we are your children, that we are no longer condemned, that we are forgiven, that we are brought in, that we are full citizens, Lord, in your kingdom. But Lord, we may also identify ourselves with the scribes and Pharisees. We may, we may not want to but we may truly be just like them with attitudes in our hearts that would shun someone who, is, uh, who has been part of some kind of a scandalous sin, where we have self-righteous attitudes, where we are manipulating things to accomplish our purposes, that all of it, Lord, is sin. And Lord, I just ask if that is true in our heart, Lord, that you would make that very, very clear. And Lord, we might even identify ourselves with both. But Lord, our pursuit is to identify ourselves, ourselves with you, to take on the mantle of Christ, Lord, not just to follow your example, but to understand that your example is there for us to follow, but in the power of your Holy Spirit. And because you have, you have gone to a cross and you've died on that cross, Lord, and with the same benefits that we have, uh, Lord, because of the cross, we can also be the kind of people who are understanding and compassionate and forgiving and, and are willing to, to, to challenge people to pursue their lives for your glory. So, Lord, we thank you for this passage. Help us to be people of compassion, to be people of the word, to be people who care about others, who are careful not to abuse, but, Lord, careful to be like Christ. We ask this, Lord, in your name.